had my communion confirmation, and just started going to church really with my dad. I mean, we was in uh, pretty much every every Sunday, you know, as much as we could. So, uh, grew up Catholic, started learning the rules of Catholicism, and um, just went with him. And it became more of a um, every Sunday to go with him. And you know, the, the fun part of it was, at least growing up, was you know, we'd go to uh, breakfast after. You know, we'd go to the diner, we'd go somewhere. It was Sundays, so we would talk about you know sports. Um, eventually, school got into into the mix as I got older. Um, we we were we were pretty close, uh, my dad and I. My dad taught me the values of, of church, um, and now that I've I have kids, I feel I need to, you know, pass that on to them. And I actually don't really know how. Uh, the Catholic Church didn't really teach you that. It taught you the rules, but it didn't teach you the relationship with, uh, with that you can have with God. And that's what um, that's what I wanted. I'd go to church, and I was not fulfilled. Uh, it was, and I was just thinking about it only on Sundays. That okay, uh, I'd pray, and then after that, I wouldn't think about God or Jesus. A after that, it was just only on Sundays. Just again, feeling that void, just missing something. Particularly, I remember though, too, speaking to my dad, and it was actually during Lent, and uh, it was uh, Ash Wednesday. You're going to, you know, um, what, are you, what are you going to give up for Lent? Uh, and I said, Dad, I don't really know. Usually, it was like, okay, everyone's giving up, you know, chocolate or something like that. And it's like, how is that going to giving up chocolate or giving up coffee for 40 days going to get you any closer to God? And my wife, she knew some people at work who, um, who were going to church. And one of her friends uh, through work said, you know, hey, Southbridge is, you know, not too far. Why don't you go check it out? Uh, so I said, okay. Um, and there was a big step, you know, stepping from a Catholic church to a, you know, a Christian church. I was, you know, was nervous. Um, but I said, I needed, I needed this. I needed to go in there and uh, um, need this for myself, my family, my kids. Um, and I can actually remember the first sermon that I went to that Scott was talking about was what captivates you. And I was like, what captivates me? And Jesus is, Jesus captivates me. And I was, I was hooked. I just, like a sponge, want to know more of about Jesus, and then I've started to learn of you need now a relationship. Since I began my relationship with Jesus, um, my life has been for my family. My dad and I have an open relationship. We speak uh, all the time, and when he comes to uh, North Carolina to visit, he, you know, if when we're here on a Sunday, I said, "I'm going to church," and. Uh, he comes to Southbridge, and he's been here uh, two, three times, and he enjoys it. Um, I wish uh, he finds something like that in, you know, in New York, which would be great. My biggest prayer to God would to show my family, my dad, uh, my kids, and my wife that uh, they would accept Jesus as their Lord and Savior. Could be tomorrow be 20 years um, through his grace again I pray that uh, it will happen
Praise God. Praise the Lord. Thank you, Gino, so much for sharing your story with us today. And we've been watching these life change stories. Isn't it neat? Uh, male, female, and young and old, and coupled and singles, and all kinds of different folks. Uh, that God's at work in our lives. That God's still working here today at Southbridge and around the world. Um, just an amazing thing that we serve a God that actually cares about what's happening here. He didn't just create everything and then separate from us. And uh, so we're excited for that. And regardless of what reason brought you to Southbridge today, maybe it's your regular Sunday routine and you just come here and you kind of just go to church or you're looking for a church and you've been visiting, you know, the first 75 you'd come to in the phone book or whatever it is that brought you to church today, I believe that God wants to have an encounter with you and he wants to speak to each one of us through his word. And so we're going to open up his word in just a moment. Before we do that, let's just go to him in prayer and ask him to speak to us through his word this morning. Our Heavenly Father, we come to you and uh, we're just grateful that you've given us your truth and that you speak to us through your word and that by your spirit you can speak into each one of our lives, each one of our circumstances, knowing our thoughts from afar, knowing our heart, knowing our passions, our desires, the things that we crave, the things that captivate us, the things that we care about. And Father God, I pray that you would captivate us this morning. I pray that we get caught up with the beauty of your grace. I pray that we'd be encompassed by the love of your arms wrapped around us. I pray that your cross would just shadow over us in such a way that we realize we can come to you. And because of the righteousness of your son, Jesus Christ, you can make us righteous. God, I pray for someone that might be far away from you. That might think that they're not good enough or, or turning their back on you or thinking about doing that, God, that you would bring them to you today. And like the father in the prodigal son story, you just wrap your arms around us. God, we thank you for your love and your truth. I pray that you'd encourage us and challenge us this morning. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Well, I trust that uh, each one of you had a great week this week. I suppose regardless of what kind of weather you like, you got it this week. If you think about it, you woke up. Do you remember we woke up on Monday morning, there was snow on the ground? And then by like lunchtime, it was about 50 degrees outside. And then by Thursday or Friday, it was 70, and all the Yankees had shorts on going to the grocery store. And I am a Yankee, so I can make fun of you as much as I would like to. Uh, I was born and raised in Michigan, actually. And so I don't like the snow at all. I've seen more than enough of it throughout my life. And I am thoroughly convinced that it's part of the curse, okay? And I'll try to convince you of that later on throughout the message. But it sparked a debate at our office. Because our worship pastor, Jad, he actually likes cold weather better than warm weather. I like the warm weather better. He likes to wear scarves and worship pastor garb or whatever that kind of stuff is. So he just, he's just weird. But he, that's what he likes. And so I, I thought it'd be interesting to get to know some of you a little bit better this morning and just do a survey. And just a survey where I'll ask a question, you raise your hand. But how many of you here, if you were given the choice between warm weather and cold weather, would choose cold weather? How many of you cold weather people? All right, good. Sinners in the house. Got it. All right. How many of you warm weather people? Yeah, God's people. All right. Jad, you lose. No, just kidding. Uh, we're glad that you're here this morning, each one of you, regardless. If you were a guest and you like cold weather, I still love you. Uh, but the rest of you, just think through some of the other stuff. Just a survey. We'll keep the survey thing going here. You came into church today, and what was your experience? Well, don't we have a great hospitality team at our church? They're so warm and welcoming. Yeah, you can give them a hand. Thank you them for serving. The person who started that's on the hospitality team. No, just kidding. Uh, the hospitality team is a wonderful group of folks at our church, and they offer you know, all these drinks from bottled waters to coffees and juice boxes and all the stuff in between. And maybe you didn't pick one today, but if you were going to pick, how many of you would pick either water or coffee? How many of you would pick coffee? How many of you are coffee drinkers today? All right. And they're proud, too. Hands went up high. How many of you water drinkers? You'd pick a bottled water if you were going to pick. Okay. Got the bottled water drinkers here today as well. Now, some of you maybe uh, eat breakfast before you come, you know, berries and fruits and things like that. But when you come here, we offer you, you know, donuts and bagels and different things. How many of you, if you were to pick between donuts and bagels, how many of you would pick a bagel? How many bagel people here today? 
All right, got bagel people here today. It's kind of dominant on this side of the room. sir. How many donut people here today? All right, some proud ones too, like that sugar. All right, Luis. All right, some of you are kind of like, I don't know, it's kind of a diet, whatever. Well, we're glad that you're here, regardless. Now, there's a lot of questions I could ask you in this survey. I'm going to go a little bit deeper on this one. How many of you, given the opportunity to live the good life, would say you'd want to live the good life? How many people here today would say that that's true? All right, some of you. Now, some people won't raise their hand no matter what question I ask, okay? I know that you're in the audience because that's like what I'm like. I don't care. what I'm just sitting here. What is he going to do? And some of you are going to say no, no matter what. And so I ask you, how many people would live the good life? The majority of people would say that they want to live the good life as opposed to what, Scott? You know, the bad life? You didn't give me one here. Or the mediocre, kind of the average in between life? What is the good life? Most of us say we want to live it. What is that? How do we define that? I'm sure many of us would give different definitions for what the good life is. Is the good life having a lot of money? Because many people would say that it's having a lot of money. If you just had enough money, that you had so much you didn't have to worry about money, then would that be the good life? Just all the luxuries of that? You ask some people that have a lot of money, and they'll tell you no. I read a, a quote by Richard Branson this week. Richard Branson is the founder of Virgin Records and a whole industry. He's a billionaire. He has $4.2 billion in his portfolio. And he says, ridiculous yachts and big limousines do not make you enjoy life more. And they send a terrible message to those who work for them. That's a guy who has all, he could have anything he wants. And he says that money's not the, that's not the key to the good life. And, and so what is? If it's not money, then maybe it's success, right? Maybe it's being the best at whatever it is you do. The best business owner, the best financial planner, the best pastor, the best musician, the best artist, the best doctor, the best fill in the blank, the best mom, the best dad, the best student, whatever it is you do. Maybe it's accomplishment and achievement. I've quoted for you before from Tom Brady, an NFL quarterback for the New England Patriots. He's been to five Super Bowls, I believe it is. He's won three and been the MVP before. He's done all kinds of stuff that many people would think that's the good life. And he says, isn't there more than this? There's got to be more to life than this. And so maybe it's not accomplishments and maybe it's not money. Maybe it's that you have what oftentimes people will define as freedom. You get to do whatever you want whenever you want. You have no responsibilities or you can just do whatever feels good. And I will tell you, and you could ask person after person in our church, that those of us who've lived that kind of life, that's not the good life. In fact, some of those things have created the greatest pain in our lives. And so maybe that's not the good life, having no rules, and maybe it's not money, and maybe it's not having uh, whatever accomplishments and successes that you could possibly dream up. And we could go through and debunk hundreds of definitions of the good life. And what we may end up asking ourselves is this, so does it exist? Is there really any such thing as the good life, or is it just some nebulous concept that's dreamed up that people will go after and live their lives in vain, meaningless? And I want to challenge you that that's not true, that There is a good life, and everyone here can have it. And I'll define the good life as this. It's the life you were created to live. It's the life you were designed for. It's the life that God intends for you, and it's a life in perfect harmony and perfect communion with him. It's an amazing life, but the problem is that many of us believe lies. We get deceived by different things, promises of the good life, and if you would just pursue this path on things that will take us directly off path from the life that God intended for us to live. And sometimes we even use God language on the whole thing. And you just think about people uh, from the beginning, Adam and Eve, they had the good life. They were living in perfect harmony, perfect communion with God in a place called Eden. Can you imagine what Eden was like? What a, what a perfect environment that was. It didn't mean there weren't any rules. Remember, there was one rule. There was fruit there, by the way, too. And so I'm confident there was no snow, <laughs> no frost, right? And so that's post, that's cursed. That's part of the thing. So I'm just proving my case. We'll get to it later. Uh, but the thing is, uh, what ends up happening is that even though there's only one rule, they break it. And the reason why they break it is because they're deceived. 
What you have is great, this perfect relationship with God, living in harmony with all of creation and with the creator and in relationship with one another. That's amazing, but there's something better. And you just got to try this. The thing that God's holding out from you, and they go down a path of destruction that leads them in direct opposition to the life that God intended. That's what happens for so many people. So the good life, it's available for all of us. It's the life that God intended for us. It's the life that you were created to live in perfect harmony with him. But the problem is we believe lies and it takes us off track. And today we're going to be looking at a letter that was written by a guy called Galatians. It was written by a guy who had experienced the good life. His name was Paul. And the good life wasn't defined by his wealth because he wasn't a wealthy man. And it wasn't defined by his circumstances because he knew some great circumstances. He knew some terrible circumstances. But in all of them he had what so many of us are looking for, satisfaction, contentment. He knew what it was to have real joy, unspeakable joy. He knew what it was to have true freedom, freedom from the opinions of others and so many things that can hold us in bondage. He knew what it was to have the good life, the life that Jesus Christ offers each one of us. I'm not going to tell you today how to become rich. I'm not going to tell you today how to have no responsibility. I'm not going to tell you today how to fix your circumstances. In fact, if you follow the life that God wants for you, your circumstances may get worse. But I can tell you today how to have the good life and exactly what it is because that's what Paul tells the people in Galatia. In Galatians chapter 2, if you have a Bible, I invite you to turn with me to Galatians chapter 2. We'll start reading in verse 15, but remember what's happening here. These are some friends of a guy named Paul. It's a guy whose life was radically transformed by having a gift given to him by grace, a gift he didn't deserve. And by placing his faith in that gift, it was by grace alone and faith alone and Jesus Christ alone that he received this life that was given him that radically changed him. Then he went around and he started some churches, and he's writing a letter to one of those churches. And we saw last week, one of their problems was they started to believe a lie, and it's such a simple lie. I'm sure none of you here would believe this lie, but it goes something like this. Everything about that grace, it's really true, but if you would just be a better person, God would love you more. If you really want to experience all that God has for you, you just need to clean up your act. You just need to do some religious things. You need to stop this, do this, don't do. It's such a subtle lie but it takes these people exactly in the opposite direction of the life that God intended for them. And so Paul writes to them, warning them, and he argues with them using three different levels of argument. One is reason, just the way that you would think, logic. One is that he argues from the scripture. And the one that we'll focus in on today is he argues from his own personal experience. We'll read all three, though, starting in verse 15 of Galatians chapter 2. He says as he appeals to these churches in Galatia, we who are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners, not talking about their moral standing, but they didn't obey the law, and so naturally they would be sinners from a Jewish perspective. He says, we know that a man is not justified by observing the law, and so he's speaking from reason here. We know that. We just know this to be true. This is self-evident. This is logical. We know that no one is justified. That means to be declared righteous by God. Not just declared innocent, but to be given righteousness, to be declared righteous by the judge, by God. No one is declared righteous by observing the law because everyone who tried to observe the law knew one thing for sure. We all break it. And if we claim that we don't, we just broke one. It's called lying. So we all know we break the law. But by faith in Jesus Christ is how we're justified. So we too have put our faith in Christ Jesus that we may be declared righteous, may be justified by faith in Christ and not by observing the law. And here he references Psalm 143, verse 2. Because by observing the law, no one will be justified. And Psalm 143, verse 2 says that no one is justified by their own righteousness, by their flesh. And so he's used reason. He's used the scriptures. And now he's going to talk about his story. Right after he answers a couple of questions of verse 17 and 18. If we, if we 
If while we seek to be justified in Christ, it becomes evident that we ourselves are sinners. We still sin after we place our faith in Jesus. Does that mean that Christ promotes sin? Absolutely not. He's not saying you just get to do whatever you want just because you receive this by grace. And then he says, if I rebuild what I destroyed, talking about the law, I prove that I'm a lawbreaker. I'm just proving again something that we already know to be true. And then he shares his testimony in verse 19. For through the law, I died to the law so that I might live for God. Verse 20, I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I live in the body, I live by faith in the son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Verse 21, I do not, see, I do not set aside the grace of God for if righteousness could be gained through the law, Christ died for nothing. If you could be good enough, then there was no reason for Jesus to go to the cross. If it were possible for you to be moral enough and have your good deeds, your bad deeds, or never create a bad deed, or whatever it is that you could do, then what Paul's saying here is that Jesus didn't need to die. Remember, Jesus prayed. If there's any other way, if that was one of the ways, people being moral enough, being good enough, then he didn't have to go to the cross. But he did have to go to the cross. And why did he go to the cross? So that he could offer you life, real life, abundant life, good life, the good life, the life that God intended for you. But it's a life that comes a certain way, and it comes through death. And it's not just through the death of Jesus that we experience it, but it's through the death of ourselves. Paul says here that he died so that he might live. You see, the good life is a life of death, which explains to us both how it happens and what it is. The good life is a life of death, and it happens for us by dying to ourselves. The life comes from death. You think about that, that sounds like a paradoxical statement. A paradox is a statement that seems to contradict itself in the statement itself, but probably has some truth to it. And you've perhaps heard paradoxical type statements before. There's some popular ones. If you just Google them, you'll come up with a bunch of different paradoxes that are out there. Maybe you heard somebody say, maybe your parents said to you something like this, don't go near the water until you learn how to swim. <laughs> uh, then how do you learn how to swim? If you knew that? Or maybe you've heard a friend say to you before, no one goes to that restaurant, it's too crowded. <laughs> then who... Um, or maybe you've heard, never say never. You just said it twice in three words. What do you mean, never say never? These statements, they seem to contradict themselves, right? And you hear Jesus say things like, if anyone wants to save his life, he must lose his life. In other words, if anyone wants to live this life, he must die. And you see throughout the scriptures, life coming from death. You see the Old Testament, and remember the story of Abraham? Abraham, this father of the faith. He's the guy who steps out by faith, and then he's going to offer his son Isaac on the altar, and then God stops him. But Hebrews tells us what happens is that Abraham reasoned in his mind that if God needed to, he'd raise him from the dead. That hadn't happened before. And he reasoned that he'd raise him from the dead. And then it says in Hebrews, figuratively speaking, that's what happened, that life came from death, and we've all been blessed through the seed of Abraham. Or Moses. Remember Moses' parents? They put him in the Nile River to try and save his life. But to them, he died. They receive him back. It's life from death. Jonah, a guy who runs from God, he would rather die than follow God's plan for his life. And he has people throw him over the edge of a boat, and by God's grace, God grabs a hold of him, gives him a second chance at life. And you see life from death. Ultimately, the picture is Jesus Christ. When he takes upon the sins of the world on himself, our sins, all of our sins, everything that we've ever done wrong, everything we've thought about doing wrong, he takes upon himself. So that then he dies. That's the curse. But he has victory over death, and he raises again, and he offers us life. It's through death that we're offered life. And it's through our death that we receive this life. And you see it in the testimony of Paul in verse 19. In Galatians chapter 2, verse 19, look back at it. It's through the law. I died to the law. What is it that Paul's saying here? 
He died to not just the law, like they're just these rules that are out there, the Torah, the Pentateuch, the Ten Commandments, whatever you want to call it, the whole Old Testament ceremonial laws. You can get arguments about what exactly he means by the law. That's not what I mean. For Paul, what is the law? Try and put yourself in his shoes as a young Jewish boy. That's family. That's culture. That's a way of life. The law is a way of comfort. And some of you know what it's like to live life a certain way. And maybe it's not the life that God intended for you, but you just get comfortable with it. Or maybe you get a routine of it. Or that's just your culture and that's the way that it goes. And so you're just kind of in, that's how you live life. And Paul, it wasn't just a routine though. It was comfort. It was culture. It was just kind of the way you live life. But he was good at it. He brags about it, in fact, and he's talking about some specific Jewish people. In Philippians chapter 3 and verse 4, he says, If anyone else thinks he has reasonable confidence in the flesh, I have more. And then he brags a little bit. He says, Circumcised on the eighth day, I followed all the traditions of the people of Israel. He's born into the right family. Of the tribe of Benjamin, even a, a good tribe. A Hebrew of Hebrews. That's culture he's speaking of there. He was native tongue, a Hebrew speaker. That's how our family rolled. That's what we did. In regard to the law, he's a Pharisee. The strictest sect. And then he goes on, as for zeal persecuting the church, and some of you may remember in our Grace Story series when we talked about Paul when he was named Saul, he actually gave approval of the death of a guy named Stephen. He would kill Christians. As for zeal persecuting the church, as for legalistic righteousness faultless, as for the man-made rules and all the extra stuff, he never violated any of that. Now you think about that. He agreed to murder but as for legalistic righteousness, he was faultless. <laughs> he never went to an R-rated movie, apparently. Paul never drank a beer. As for legalistic righteousness, he never shook his pelvis like Elvis. You know, he, he was, he had it down. I mean, he was, he was a righteous guy. And he says, I died to that way of life. That was my way of life. I tried that. And you know what he was trying it for? In pursuit of the good life. And what about us? Some of us, we have ways of life. Comfortable ways of life. Or maybe ways of life that aren't the best, but it's just what we know. Maybe it's our culture. And some of you, you know that that's not the life that God intended for you. That's a great place to be. We've heard story after story. You can read the grace stories banner. It's out in the lobby. You've seen the testimonies over the last, this year that we've been playing of, of story after story. A person that realized they were going on a path and it was not the path that God intended for them. And some of them, like last week with Dale, Dale shared his story about how he was in a legalistic background where there were literally rules upon rules they didn't really resemble Bible verses. But he believed if he broke them, that he'd go to hell. That's not the life God intended. Or hear other people's stories. One lady shared with me that I could tell her story. Her name is Jane. She's one of the leaders in our Celebrate Recovery Ministry, which meets on Thursday nights at 7 o'clock. And she talked about how she grew up in a home that was an alcoholic home. And so that created a lot of anger and a lot of bitterness and a lot of unforgiveness. And that influenced other relationships she had outside of her home, too. In fact, even into her marriage, and there's alcoholism that was a problem in the marriage as well, and unforgiveness there, and then because of her anger and her bitterness, she hurt other people because hurting people end up hurting people, and so she hurt people, and then by the grace of God, she came to our church and through the ministry of celebrate recovery and different ministries at our church, she heard about the grace of Jesus Christ, entered into a relationship with him, began to walk in freedom. She died to that way of life. And started to step out of the anger and the bitterness and she began to forgive people and began to seek forgiveness from people to walk in the life that God intended for her to walk into. And some people, that's how it goes. It's just kind of, that's what your culture, that's what you're grown up with. Or, or so some people, it's decisions that you've made and you keep making those decisions and you're in that, that rut. And some people, no one would ever confront you. Do you think anyone's going to ever confront Paul? Because look at what he's doing. He's dying to the law. What is that? That's the Bible. 
Like, regardless of how you cut it, whatever you say that he's referring to when he says the law here, this is Bible verses. This is God stuff. You know what Paul was doing? He was using God to run from God. Very common amongst church people. First time I heard this concept was in a book by Peter Scazzaro named Emotionally Healthy Spirituality. You may want to check it out. But he talks about unhealthy spirituality and what happens is people will use God, God talk, sprinkle some verses in to actually turn their back and live a life opposite of the one that God intended for them. Sometimes that's by serving and being busy and never dealing with the stuff that God's trying to work on in their lives. Sometimes it's just use God talk to actually do blatant disobedience. You wouldn't believe how many times as a pastor you hear people doing this kind of thing. You'll get kids that won't listen to their parents, rebel against their parents. You'll say, you know, honor your parents. First commandment with the promise is like real clear. It's in the top 10. You know, kind of like this should be an easy meeting. But maybe they'll say things like, well, I know that I'm supposed to be doing this. God told me to, and I obey God, not man. Use verses to actually disobey God's word. Or you'll hear people that'll take off on their spouse, and they'll talk about, well, I've got this incredible peace about this, you know, adulterous relationship I'm in. And you'll be amazed at what people can have a peace about. Because of a seared conscience. And look at Jonah. If you want a Bible example, the guy was blatantly running from God. He falls asleep in a boat that's in a storm while everybody else is panicking. He's sleeping. You can have a peace and be an incredible disobedience. Using God to run from God is the very thing that Paul was doing here. It's what maybe some of us are doing here. Do you know what you need to do? Die to that way of life. First thing you need to do is acknowledge, recognize that's not the life that God intended for you. And if you can do that today, that's a great step. So how do you do that? Well, look at the passage. He tells us next in verse 20. I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. What an amazing verse, huh? Isn't that a great verse? For some of you, it might be your life verse or your favorite verse in all of the Bible. Maybe you've seen an athlete write that on his tennis shoes, you know, Galatians 2.20, all-star game. Helps me win the dunk competition, Whatever. Doesn't that have a great Christian ring to it? I have been crucified with Christ, therefore I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. I've got a question for you, especially if you've been in church for, say, five or more years. What does that mean? What does that verse mean? How would you go about applying a verse like this? I've been crucified with Christ, therefore I no longer... How do you crucify yourself? What do you do there? Pray more, right? Isn't that be a good thing for me to say as a pastor? Right? Read your Bible. Go to more, go to more church services. Something with self-discipline. Wouldn't it seem like... Like, deny yourself in some way. So what does that mean? Like, give up something that you normally would like. Like, go to lunch today. I'm not going to have cookies for lunch today. Somebody comes to you and says, hey, would you like a cookie with your lunch? Oh, I've been crucified with Christ. No, I no longer live. It's Jesus. (laughs) Who said Jesus doesn't like cookies? (laughs) Is that a good application of this? No. How do you do this verse? Let me tell you. You don't. It's already been done. I have been, that's passive voice. Paul isn't saying this is something he does. This is something that's already been done for him. I have been crucified. It's in the perfect tense in the Greek. That means it's an action that took place in the past that has present results. It has results in his life now because of something that's been done in the past. And what's been done in the past was the cross of Christ. It says, I have been, this has already taken place for me, crucified with Christ. Therefore, I no longer live. It's Jesus Christ who lives in me. And so what that means is that's why you're able to be justified, verse 16, to be declared righteous. It's legal language. Oftentimes I thought about it like a courtroom setting, like God is the judge, and he looks down at me and he sees the word righteousness, and he looks down at Jesus and he sees the word sin. But that's not what it is. It goes beyond that. This isn't just a legal transaction. This is a relational transaction. 
So when he looks down at Jesus Christ, what he sees is all of my sin, all the terrible stuff that I've done, all the times I've used God to run from God, all the things I've done in my own strength to try and get God like me more. He sees all the, everything that's contrary to the life that God intended for me to live, he sees that on the cross of Jesus Christ. And when he looks at me, he sees Jesus not just a word righteousness. He sees the miraculous life. He sees the sinless life. He sees the death for the sacrifice of sins on the cross. He sees the resurrection life. That's mine. And so the resurrection life, anyone who's placed their faith in Jesus Christ, that's yours. It's by grace alone. You don't deserve it. Through faith alone and Jesus Christ alone that what you receive is righteousness, the righteousness of God. And so what happens is then his victory over sin is yours, that you are his son. He sees you as he sees Jesus. That miraculous life, it's yours. That power, it's yours. All of that is yours. That access to the inheritance, it's yours. All of it's yours. What an amazing truth. But what about this? What does this mean for me when I have a bunch of errands to run? Or the kids won't go to bed at night? Or people have expectations that you can never meet? Or you're told you have cancer? You lose a job? Your spouse is running around on you. Somebody lies to you. So what does that mean here now? Like, those are great truths, right? But what does that mean today? Well, see, lots of people try to depict this concept of us being declared righteous and what this looks like for us. Because it's a very difficult concept to grab a hold of. In fact, I watched a movie last week with my, my family. Well, it was going to snow outside. We canceled community group and decided we were going to just hunker down at the house and, and let everybody in Raleigh run to Walmart and buy powdered milk and all that kind of stuff. And so we were going to watch a movie. We're just dumb Yankees. So, you know, put our shorts on, pop TV on. And so we, we sat down. We watched C.S. Lewis's The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. It's a movie that actually tells the story of justification, tells the story of what it is to be declared righteous. And the key elements of it are uh, a lion, a witch and a wardrobe. <laughs> kind of crazy how that works, right? And what happens in C.S. Lewis's story is that these four children, they're living in this huge house, and there's this one room that's empty, except it has this wardrobe in it. In order to hide, they run into this wardrobe, but on the back side of it, there's this fantasy world called Narnia. And they step out into this fantasy world. This world's under a curse, and you can tell because there's snow everywhere. <laughs> <laughs> Told you. Even C.S. Lewis knew. And so uh, the witch... The witch actually has them under a curse, and so there's snow all over the land, and it's frozen place, and, and she's kind of ruling in this place, but the real king of the place is this lion. The lion's name is Aslan. The lion is powerful and dangerous, but good. And while he's the king, he's not currently ruling and reigning, and these four kids, one of them comes into contact with the witch. His name is Edmund, and he gets tempted by a Turkish delight, a little piece of food, not a fruit, but think donut. There's a little donut here, Edmund. And she wins him into trusting her way rather than a different way. And she promises him that if you trust me, you'll be king. You'll have control. You will rule. It'll be the good life. But what really happens is when he believes the lie, she's in control and he's held in bondage. And isn't that how it happens? Those of you who know, you know exactly what I mean. And so Edmund, he takes this, but he gets rescued out from his friends, from his brother and from these little girls that are his sisters and comes back into the camp. But there's this scene where the witch comes to speak with Aslan. And the witch says to Aslan, you know the rules. He's mine. He's a traitor. And every traitor's blood belongs to me. But Aslan makes a deal. Well, he'll give his life in place of Edmund's life. It's a real sacrificial death. 
And then what happens next is the witch sacrifices Aslan, kills the lion. And then what happens right after that is there's a battle between all the people that were for Aslan and all the people that were for the witch. And let me tell you something, the witch is kicking some butt. She's coming through some mountains. There's like a falcon that comes flying by. She's got this big spear. She knocks the falcon, you know, crazy looking talking bird thing. Goes flying to the ground. Then there's a horse dude that comes in. He's like top part of the body, man, bottom part horse, not from the Old Spice commercial. But he comes running in. He's going to fight. And she kills him, freezes him. And then Edmund comes out to fight. She stabs Edmund. Edmund dies. She is winning the battle. She's kicking butt. But then what happens, and the people that are making the movie show you, that the lion, one thing she didn't account for was he's got power over death. And he raises from the dead. And he comes running into the battle scene. And you're like, yeah, because you're yeah, wanting to be with the lion scene, right? And so the lion comes running in. And even though everybody else is losing, the lion dies on the witch, it's over. Victory. And then Edmund gets raised to life, new life. And the horse guy and everybody else gets resurrection life. Even though they were losing the battle, the victory is theirs. That's what happens with Jesus Christ because he's been crucified. I have been crucified with Christ. Therefore, I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. Those are the spiritual truths. That's justification. That's declared righteous. That makes us children of God. That changes our identity. But what about our lives here and now? That's what Paul talks about next. Not just the spiritual reality, but the practical reality of how do we live this stuff out. Look at the second part of verse 20. I've been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. Past perfect. The life I live, present tense. The right here and right now life. The life I live in the body, though, because Paul still had to pay bills. He still had churches to plant. He still had relationships to work on. He still had tents to make. The life I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. That stuff that happened, it has impact now because now I live by faith. And see, the life that's the good life is a life of death. It's also a life of faith. The good life is a life lived by faith. And you think about it, the way you start a relationship with Jesus Christ is by faith. Paul talks about it in Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 8 and 9. is by grace through faith. Faith is the means. It is by grace through faith. Not of works. That way none of us can be proud of the things that we do. It's the gift of God. It's by grace, a gift that you don't deserve, that we live out by faith, through faith, the means. See, without faith, Hebrews tells us in chapter 11, verse 6, it's impossible to please God. What is faith? Well, faith can seem like just a mental thing that you do. You just believe some facts to be true. That's not faith. A better word may be trust for our culture. It's not just to believe Faith means trust, to lean into something, to put your weight on something. It's an emotional, it's a spiritual word. If you've ever trusted in a relationship, you know what I'm talking about. You're giving confidence to someone. And this is a trust in God. A trust in what he's done through his son, Jesus Christ, was sufficient for your eternal destiny. It's not about your good works. It's not about anything you bring to the table, that you weren't good enough. You put all that stuff on the cross. You trust in Jesus Christ. That's how you begin a relationship with Jesus. And you could do that today. You can place your trust in Jesus Christ today. Some of you may need to do that, but for the rest of you, you've trusted Jesus. How's that going? How's it working? The trusting Jesus. Because you realize it's not just something that happens one time as an event in the past, right? And if you think about it, many times when we talk about trusting Jesus, we say, I trusted, past tense, Jesus. Like when I was five years old, or I trusted Jesus when I was, you know, Scott preached a message on something, I raised my hand, I trusted Jesus. Like five years ago, I even got baptized. 
or I trusted Jesus at camp or some type of thing you, in the past, trusted Jesus. And someday, future tense, you will have the benefit of heaven. But Paul says in this verse, in verse 20, the life I live presently, not the life I lived on the Damascus road, not past tense, the life I live here today, I live by faith. And you look through the scriptures and everybody that walks by faith and experiences the good life, it's not about a one-time faith event. Moses, when he encounters God at the burning bush, there's a struggle of faith that you see there, but then he obeys. And he goes before Pharaoh to lead God's people. But then there's multiple plagues, and each time he's got to trust God and stand before the Red Sea and put the staff out, and each time there's a new trust. It's not, hey, Moses, did you trust me back there at the burning bush in the past? As you walk by faith, I'm going to continue to put faith steps before you. You think about Abraham. He had to leave a place without knowing where he was going as the father of our faith. He walks out not knowing where he's going to end up, just based on a promise of God. I'm going to give you a land, a seed, a blessing. Wasn't that enough? Then he says, I want you to give me your child. I want you to give me the most valuable thing to you. The thing that I've actually promised that through that I would fulfill my other promises. Then he makes sense. But do you trust me today? Now, did you trust me back then when you picked up the tent pegs and left or went out not knowing where you were going? Do you trust me today? You think about the disciples. Peter, he left the business to go and follow Jesus. And then Jesus says, we get out of the boat too. Come follow me. Each disciple left something to follow Jesus to his death. And then after his death, he says, now if you trust me, go make disciples. Walk by faith. I'll be with you. There's a promise for you. It's continual walk of faith. And so the question for us is not, are you a Christian? Did you in some past tense trust Jesus? But are you trusting Jesus? Because sometimes we get mad at God that we trusted you as our Savior. And then we try to live life a different way than the way we began the relationship. But then we're mad when we don't have the good life. And we don't have the joy and we don't have the peace and we're not experiencing the abundant life. But are we trusting? Or was it just something that happened in the past? So we're trying to hold him accountable for not giving us something he gave us that we're not experiencing because we're not trusting. And so you think about the different areas of life. The kids won't go to sleep, having a hard time paying the bills, don't have time through the week, whatever the things are that happen throughout the week. There's promises for all that stuff. You go through the scripture, there are almost uncountable numbers of promises. I posted on, on Twitter this week uh, an article that I found where a guy went through the Bible and gave promises from every book of the Bible. So even like Leviticus, there were promises in there for, for each one of us. There are promises all through the scriptures. And you think about them. Think about our time. He promises us that life is like a vapor. So do we live like life is like a vapor or do we live like this is all there is? In which case we're not walking by faith. The life I live, I live by faith. That means trusting in the promises he's already given us. He's clearly stated promises to us. Promises, for instance, like with temptation, something we all face. He promises us in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13, that there will be no temptation that will seize you that's common to man, and he'll be faithful. Here's his faithfulness. He'll give us a way out. So if we walk by faith, we look for the way out, and we take the way out. That's trust. That's a life of faith. So we're walking by faith. You've got temptation promises. You've got promises about time. You've got promises about money. It's better to give than it is to receive. Really? Or do we live like it's all the stuff we need to get? Or do we look for opportunities to bless? That's living by faith. That's walking according to the promises. And the scripture's filled with promises. Well, where's the promise for when the kids are acting up or the boss is a jerk or whatever type of things that happen in life? And what about 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3? 
By his divine power, he's given us everything we need for life and godliness through our knowledge of him who called us. So it's not that we can't respond well because he hasn't given us what we need. Well, I need to try harder then because I really need to work this thing out. And you get worn out by trying to live out the Christian life ever. What does he say? Do you live according to this promise? In Philippians chapter 1 and verse 6, being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on until completion, until the day of Christ Jesus. So who's doing the work? Is it you or is it him? Are these circumstances maybe part of the work? The difficult stuff that's happening, maybe that's part of the work? Do you live out these promises? That's living by faith. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17 says this, that you are a new creation. The old is gone, new has come. If anyone's in Christ, he's a new creation. You're literally a new person. Do you live according to that truth? You can't be in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and not mention this verse, though. What a great promise. This is justification. God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Are you righteous? Not do you do everything perfect. Are you the righteousness of God? Have you trusted Jesus? That's living by faith. What about all the difficult stuff that happens? Some of you got some tough stuff. Romans chapter 8, verse 18. What a great verse. I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. Do you believe that? That no matter what you're going through, that one day when you see the glory of God, it will be uncomparable, even, not even talkable, not even worth discussing because you'll be so overwhelmed by the glory of God. Do you live according to that and with that hope? But what about right when I'm in it? Well, we continue to read in Romans chapter 8. There's promises all over the place. Verse 28, and we know that in all things, God works for the good, our good, of those who love him, who've been called according to his purposes. That he's working them out according to his purposes for his glory. And he says right here in this passage, for our good. And continue to go on through the scriptures, Hebrews. I don't know what you're dealing with. Singleness, old age, temptation, struggles. Difficulty, addiction. But we have a priest who's un, who is able to sympathize. We do not have a priest who's unable to sympathize, but a priest who's able to sympathize with our weaknesses because he's been tempted in every way, just as we're tempted. Do you live according to that? That's living by faith. I don't even talk about the Old Testament. There's a lot of verses in the Old Testament, in case you haven't noticed. Habakkuk 2.4. Here's an interesting one. But the righteous will live by faith. So even a guy like Abraham, even these Old Testament people that we think are under the law, they were declared righteous by their faith, by grace alone, through faith alone, and Jesus Christ alone. He's given you everything you need for every circumstance you come into contact with to live the life that he desires for you to live. No, by the way, it's not even you living, it's Christ living in you because he is faithful to do the work in you. Regardless of the circumstances, he's working those circumstances out for your good, his glory. And in the midst of those, you can go to a high priest who can sympathize with everything that you're going through. Regardless of the temptations, the difficulties, the trials and the struggles, you have one and he desires for you to live by faith. Trust him. So are you living by faith? See, that's the good life. That's the life that brings real freedom from everything that can hold you into bondage. That's the life that brings real joy, unspeakable joy. That is the life. That's the life that God intended for you to live. And if you're living anything contrary to that, you need to die to that life. Walk by faith and live a life that's a life of grace. That's our last point. See, the good life is a life of grace, giving and receiving grace. And you see Paul conclude in this passage in verse 21 very simply by saying he does not set aside the grace of God. He says, I do not set aside the grace of God for if righteousness could be gained through the law by me doing stuff, Christ died for nothing. So he doesn't set aside the grace of God. What is the grace of God? It's you receiving what you don't deserve. It's a gift that's being offered to you. We've said multiple times, Romans 6, 23, for the wages, what you deserve. 
of sin, which is everything that's contrary to the life that God intended for you, even when it's using God to run from God. For the wages of sin is death. You deserve separation from him. You deserve condemnation from him. You deserve punishment from him. You deserve guilt from him. That's what you deserve. But the gift of God is eternal life. The grace of God, the gift that he gives you is eternal life, real life, abundant life, the life he desires for you. The here and now life, because this is eternal life, John 17, 3, that you would know Christ. And how do you know Christ? Through faith. And in order for that to happen, what has to happen? Everything that seems natural to you, that's been a part of your culture, that you try and work it out on your own, you have to die to that. And how does that happen? Oh, it's been taken care of on the cross. What you do is you trust Jesus. So how's that working? That's the life of grace that's being offered to you. How many people want the good life? The majority of us want the good life. It's available to us all. But it's a life of death, it's a life of faith, and it's a life given to you by grace. So we receive it. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we come before you today. And we're so grateful that you give us your grace, that you offer us your life. And Father God, I pray for each one of us to experience the life you desire for us today. You know what the struggles are, what the trials are, what the difficulties are in each one of our lives. And you know how you're calling each one of us to trust you. Father God, will you speak to our hearts this morning? Each one of us. Only you can do that. And call us to a new step of faith with you. Father, I pray for those who need to begin a relationship with you today. They need to stop trying to be good enough on their own or to recognize where they've been headed with their sin and they need to turn to you. And Father God, I pray that today they would place their faith in your son, Jesus Christ. Not just believing and acknowledging, but they would place their faith, their trust in your son, Jesus Christ and what he did on the cross. And they would receive the life that you're offering them, the eternal life. And if you need to trust Jesus Christ as your savior today, you can do that very simply by calling upon Jesus Christ to be your savior. Acknowledge your sin. Acknowledge the way that you've been living is not what God's looking for. What he's looking for is you to trust his son, Jesus Christ, as your Savior. And just pray. And whatever your own words are, just from your heart as you sit there, and say, God, I want to acknowledge my sin and trust Jesus to be my Savior. And if you do that today, I would just ask that you would mark it on your connection card before you leave. Or if you're watching online, if you'd send us an email, southbridge at southbridgefellowship.com. Just say, I watched the message and I prayed to receive Jesus. We want to give you some information to help you grow in that relationship. We want to pray for you. And Father, I pray for each one of my friends here that have trusted you as their Savior before, that they know you, but maybe they're not living by faith, that we would trust you more. And Father, I pray for those of us that have been trying to do it in our own flesh and our own strength. I pray that we would stop today and we'd acknowledge what you've done for us and we claim your promises and walk according to your promises. And Father, I pray for those that are reluctant to do that or to struggle, that you would wear them out so bad that they have to trust in you. They would realize that they can't live this life on their own, that they need you. It's in Jesus' name I pray.